There was, there was lots of points where if someone had come along to me and said, Nick, I can make all this go away, I probably would have taken them up on the offer. It all washed out in the end because Moonpig was a structurally very profitable company. A lot of people, when they sell their company, they feel a feeling of regret. Six months after that deal, I had no regrets about having sold it. You don't want to sell a company and look at it afterwards. If it sold for billions, I think I sold too early. Actually, it's done well enough that you're very happy with the deal, and not so well that I regret having sold it. If you're thinking about buying someone a personalised card or a great gift, nowadays the brands Moonpig and Photobox are the first to pop into your mind. But of course, it wasn't always like this. And over 15 years ago, two founders set off, unbeknown to each other, on similar paths only to come up competing, meeting a few times, and in the end, working together to corner this market. Nick Jenkins sold Moonpig to Photobox for roughly 120 million quid and went on to become one of the best-known angel investors in Britain after his stint on BBC's Dragon's Den. So we'll be covering some angel investing questions in this episode too. A few years later, Graham Hobson's Photobox exited for around £400 million. But how did these two companies go from fiercely competing to working in harmony? And how did those negotiations go? More to the point, I know you're all wondering, who did better out of that deal? Well, these are exactly the questions we plan on answering in this, our first release of a live recording from our Secret Leaders live series. So please get ready for Angel Investing and the Art of Negotiating an Exit with Nick Jenkins and Graham Hobson. We hope you enjoy. Hi. Hello. How are you doing? Good. So uh, for the first 10 minutes, because of course what we want everyone to do is actually listen to Nick's episode in full because it's awesome. I'm going to pull out a couple of uh, snippets of conversation that we discuss in the episode so you guys have some kind of idea of what to expect. So Nick, shall we start with Russia? What were you doing in Russia and how did that help shape your career? Who were you working for? Give us some insights there. Okay, so I ended up in Russia because... I got two Ds and an E at A level, and I couldn't do law, and so I ended up doing Russian literature at a time, and then by the time I finished doing Russian, Russian suddenly became quite a useful language, and, um, and, uh, and so I was, I, was, I was asked to go out to Russia and go and set up a business, out, set, set up an office for a company out there. And for the company out there, it, the company was Glencore. Uh, so I started out selling forklift trucks, and I did that for about a year. And then because I spoke, by that point, did speak Russian. Well, actually, I, I spoke Russian when I got there. I just couldn't understand a word they said back. What's the Russian for forklift truck? Uh, it's Gruzopodyomnik. Uh, Mm, there we go. Don't say you haven't learned Do we something have independent tonight. verification? Yeah, okay. we have a Ru- we're Russians over there, kid. <laughs> there we go. Gruzopodyomnik. Um, uh, so I could speak Russian, I could, just couldn't understand what they said back to me for about a year, so business was slow. And after about a year, I, I kind of got into it. And then I got approached by Glenn. What was Mark Rich then? And then became Glencore. And so Mark Rich is quite famously this sort of, um, you know, caricature of what an evil megalomaniac, you know, type of tyrant boss would be in, th- yeah. in the media, certainly. Um, is he like that in real life? Now, I, when I think back, I used to have to go and report to him every three months. And, um, and he, he was at the top of this sort of glass, very secure building with lots of security and, and lots of sort of ex-Mossad bodyguards. And at the top of the town, he said, and I always remember him having a white cat, but I can't remember whether or not that was just a, a, just a, you know, a figment of my imagination as I look back. And he was ah, yes. Um, but he, was, uh, he was a bit like that, yeah. OK, so he was actually a bit of a crazy bastard. No, 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 I mean, he was very bright. He was just, a, he was just, he was just very, he was very avaricious. Um, you know. What is that in Russian? Um, I don't know, he's saying avaricious um, it's in, in Russian. Actually, I don't know that word in Russian. But uh, <laughs> I, I'm sure they don't, I'm sure they're not. Um, but uh, he was, 
but he, he, was, he wasn't the greatest moral example, perhaps, but, no. uh, but he was very smart. Okay, so uh, amongst other um, endeavours uh, Nick has been through, you know, uh, I think it's very important as part of the journey. Uh, you have the founder of a company that most of us have obviously used, um, very successful, widely known. The assumption is absolute genius, overnight success. How did they get there, Nick, so that everyone knows that's not true? Can you please explain the story of your shirts, collars? Oh, oh yeah, yeah. So my first business I set up at university, which was a, a, a dress shirt business. Um, you know, for doing all sort of the, the university parties. And it was dress shirts with screen-printed designs of Tintin, Dennis the Menace, and Lenin on the back of them. They were hugely popular, sold like hotcakes. Problem was, when I'd asked them to be made, the shirt maker asked me what shirt size I wanted, what collar size I wanted. And I hadn't actually done any research on that, so I thought, I don't know. Well, I was a 15. I thought, I'll have some 15s, 16s, 17s, some 14s, and some 13s, whatever. And nobody has a size 14-inch neck. Um, so I ended up with, although I sold all of the, the ones in the usable collar sizes, I, the only thing is, I don't know why the Cypriot shirt maker didn't say to me, Nick, no one has ever bought a size 14-inch neck shirt. Maybe you should think about this twice. Anyway, I lost, I lost my shirt, literally, on that one. <laughs> I, okay. actually, I lost about 200 shirts on that one, and that was, that was, I had to go and get a job after that. Okay, so um, after you uh, had had your experience with Mark Rich in Russia, you, as I remember from the episode, you went off to business school. Is that correct? Off to Wharton? I wish I'd gone to Wharton. I had to go to Cranfield instead. Oh, Cranfield, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. so not, not quite as good. <clears throat> no, no, no. I, I went to Cranfield because they didn't make you do a GMAT test. Okay. They just said, can you, can you pay the fees? And yes. What, 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 were your insa- what, what was the thing that made you go to... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> clearly. You'd, just, you'd be just been working in Russia. I mean, you've got to be able to sign your own name uh, but, uh, and, uh, on the cheque. And is that um, where you came up with the idea for Moonpig? It was, yeah. And how did you come up with that? I mean, how many crappy ideas did you have before you I'd, had Moonpig? I'd, I had four crappy ideas, and that was the least crappy of the lot. Can you tell us what's even crapper than Moonpig? Uh, so I had this idea of getting Russian biochemists to, to grow exotic mushrooms to, for, sell, for sale in supermarkets, um, you know, sort of truffles and things like that, not hallucinogenic ones. And, um, but then I figured that you'd probably just get screwed over by the supermarkets. Um, as I've discovered, having been involved in the supermarket uh, business, in the, in the food business now, that's true. They just sort of squeeze you down to a barely acceptable level of margin. And, and then the other one was uh, gyms within companies, large companies in the city. I thought it'd be great if people could you know, set up a gym in the company. What I realised then is that nobody wants to sweat in front of their colleagues. So, um, so that wasn't going to be a huge success either. Funny, I don't think it is. I don't think there are many gyms inside, inside people's companies. Um, and uh, I think there was, there was one other that was... Uh, I think it was actually it was kind of an incubator, but I realised that was more of a property play. It was a sort of a, you know, set up a, a kind of a WeWork-type space, but with, uh, with accounting and this and the other. But it was... Um, anyway, Moonpig appeared to be the, the least silly of them. And so, you know, in a, in a nutshell, obviously, you know, we'll, we'll fast forward the story, but um, you ended up selling Moonpig to Photobox. Yes. How long did that process take from coming up with the idea of Moonpig to literally the day you sold? Uh, it was 11 years. And do you feel like people approach you talking about this journey as if it was just some overnight success that just happened? No, but people, people they look at a company from the point at which they became aware of it which is probably several years down, uh, it, down its development. And they, they, you know, they, they're not aware of it when it was, when it was sort of struggling, struggling away. And Moonpig didn't really become... It was six years before... I think we had 300,000 customers in 2006, which is when we broke even. Um, so that was probably six years where nobody was really aware of us. And very important question, who came up with a jingle? 
Actually, rather mundane, it was the ad agency. They, they said there was, there'd been a bit of a gap, a pause, and nobody had done uh, a, a, a jingle for a while. I mean, you know, and they do work, but they come, into, they come into fashion and out of fashion, and no one had done one for a while, so we just got in there at the right time. Now there are lots of irritating jingles. <laughs> and you're just one of them. Yeah, I'm just one of them, yeah. yeah. But, the but one we, that people remember. We, we got into the sort of subliminal consciousness of, of children from the age of three. I mean, I went, I went to do a talk at a primary school once, and, uh, and when I mentioned Moonpig, all of them, a bit like sort of, um, <laughs> as if they'd been brainwashed, also, Moonpig.com. Wow, we really have taken over. Um, it's quite, quite frightening. Um, hmm. um, what was your insight with Moonpig? Because obviously we'll, we'll come on to this a little bit about you know, how that uh, became so relevant with what Photobox were looking for. But you know, what was that um, point of difference? What do you think made you special? Well, it, it was uh, the fact that particularly, and it's a very British thing, we like, um, we like sending cards that are a bit rude, a bit sort of cutting edge. And I used to send lots of cards, tipex out the caption and write something far ruder on the front, and, and then when you personalize it, people, they never throw it away, they stick it in their fridge. And uh, it could be as rude as, you know, the ruder the better. Um, I, if you, if, it doesn't work in America, they sue you, which is why we didn't, <laughs> we d didn't have a business in America, we tried in America, and uh, we, it, it all became very bland. I mean, people, people just say, happy birthday, John. But I mean, everyone knows, everyone knows what, uh, what personalization is. I mean, there's no magic there. What we used to do is allow people to be very clever by weaving in someone, you know, it's, a good birthday card is all about being very relevant and being sort of, it's because you know them well enough to be able to say this. And it's a combination of humour and allowing them to weave someone's story into it. So, um, so we, did that very, we did that very, very well. So one of the things about uh, Secret Leaders that we try to get with our guests is discussing the tough moments as well. So without um, going too much into it, of course, because, again, I want you to listen to Nick's actual episode, can you share some of the really hard moments in your journey, uh, you know, maybe something that really stood out as uh, make or break for you and how you dealt with it? There was, there, was, there, was, there was one particularly difficult period. Um, unfortunately, it lasted from 2000 until 2005. And, <laughs> and that was... Um, uh, but there was, it was that whole point of when... There was, there was lots of points where if someone had come along to me and said, Nick, I can make all this go away, um, I just, please, just hand over the keys, and it'll just all disappear as if it was a bad dream. Um, I probably would have taken them up on the offer. Uh, but no one ever off made me that offer. The, I think the worst thing, and this, this, you know, founders will identify this, is the, the difference between employees and, and founders. When, when we were absolutely on the brink, we owed about half a million quid, and we'd got someone who was going to put some money in. It was a company, but then they'd had a delay in their process. They were the only people interested in funding it. And there was every chance they could have pulled out of the deal. And I had to go away on holiday, and... Um, oh, no, I didn't have to go on holiday. So I planned to go on holiday after celebrating the deal. But, of course, the deal had been delayed. So I thought, well, all I'll do if I stay in the office is just wear a hole in the carpet. So I went away on holiday and carried on working at sort of 3 o'clock in the morning until 8 before we started skiing. And, the, um, and I just remortgaged the last of my flat to pay everyone's wage bill. Um, I had nothing left at that point, nothing left at all. And the marketing director called me and said, do you realise you paid my salary a day late? Do you realise the inconvenience that, that has caused me? I think, fucking hell. I mean, do you realise what it's like to mortgage the last of your worldly possessions in order to pay your salary? No. I mean, he didn't last long. Um, but he, um, <laughs> but it was, that, that kind of brought it home. That was one of those, when you realise that when, when things get really, really bad, you are on your own. Um, hmm. 
Okay, so before we get um, our next guest up here, what was, um, and he might have a different version of events here, but what, what, what was the first moment you made contact with Photobox? I, I, I went back and looked at the first email I had from, from Graham, and it was 2004. Oh, so literally so the worst, so, so worst period of his it life was you were involved. It was about May 2004, and because <clears throat> I'd bumped into someone, bumped into, got to know someone who knew them, and we were both in the kind of digital printing thing, and we ended up doing quite a lot of the printing for their, uh, for the particular type of printing that they hadn't got the kit for. Um, and so we, we were sort of, we'd been in contact ever since then. Uh, then eventually, I think they bought their own presses to, to do that later on. Uh, but we'd, we'd been in touch for a, for a long time, and then, um, and then we sort of, uh, got back in touch at the time of the sale. Okay, so before we touch on that part of the story, we're going to welcome Graham up. But before we do that, we have, um, maybe with audio, maybe not, so I hope your eyes are attuned to the subtitles here, just in case, but a snippet of uh, Graham's episode, which is episode three of series one. Like a lot of entrepreneurial activity, it started because I had a need in my own life. I had two young kids at the time, and took lots of pictures with my wife. So I bought a Sony camera, just found that there was nowhere to get prints. And I thought, well, it can't be that difficult. The real driver for me was I wanted the service. If somebody else provided it, I would have been perfectly happy. Started to write a business plan. I wrote it on the tube on the way into work. We were just kind of winging it. So from writing a business plan on the tube to selling his company for a reported but never yet agreed publicly amount of around £400 million, can we welcome the co-founder of Photobox, Graham Hobson, to the stage? <laughs> so we're going to start off by confirming that those are the facts they or not. Around that number. Around that number, we okay. We'll bracket, confirm that yeah. it's around that number. Okay, not bad. Um, so, Graham, your story um, is, of course, slightly different. Everyone has their own version. Um, now, as um, Nick was working for the uh, potentially evil, maybe not, Mark Rich, megalomaniac in Russia, you were working for the evil banks. I was. Can you tell us what it was like in your heady days at, was it Merrill Lynch? Yeah, so I, I, I'm a technologist. I studied computer science at uni, uh, left there, went to work for London Stock Exchange, bearing securities, and I met Nick Gleason, the guy who brought down the bank, because he sat opposite me for a while. Um, then went to UBS, and then finally Merrill Lynch. Um, and at that point, I'd been working in investment banking technology for, I don't know, 11 years or something, and I just, I was ready for a change. I think I was 35 at the time, I'd accumulated some kind of experience and confidence and a bit of savings and was desperately bored. And there were two, two things were that drove me to Were you the only person that was bored of working in a bank in the 90s? Well, apparently not, because I recruited my partner from there as well. Okay. But um, uh, two things. One was IR35, which was coming in, which was like going to penalize me for being a contractor. And the second thing was they were scrapping dress down dress code. So uh, I thought, there's no way I can go back to wearing Just a suit. Just so everyone knows, that days. scooter in the corner is Graham's. So yeah, this is uh, part of the dress down outfit. So I think I was ready, ready for a change. The dot-com boom was happening. And, um, uh, and I wasn't kind of thinking, I must do something. I must do an idea on the internet. But this idea came to me because I needed to print from a digital camera. And I just couldn't find a solution. And I thought, 
you know, like it's a piece of technology and it's a printing machine like you see in the back of a chemist, so it can't be difficult. So before we get on to exactly it can't be difficult, because I'm assuming it was probably a little bit more difficult than you expected, um, I just want to let everyone know that one of our guests up here is pretty much a convicted felon. So Graham, can you tell us about your terrible, dark history? Um, I think convicted felon is a yeah, little it's strong. Rich. Yeah, yeah, it's, 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 it's definitely hyperbole, but you know, it's, it's the suspense. So I went to uni in 1986, and that was the year that War Games, the movie, came out. And you're probably all too young to remember the movie, but it was all about modems and hacking and setting off the Third World War, and, and, and I just thought it was amazing. Um, my parents uh, had a, a flat in Florida. My dad used to work out there sometimes. And if you went into a radio shack in the States and bought a phone cable, you got an hour of CompuServe time for free. So I used to buy these cables and sell them to people at uni because they got online time for it. So I was just really into that. Um, I went and bought a modem kit from Maplin, built my first 300 bits per second modem, uh, and then proceeded to kind of try and find my way into any system I could. So I. I accidentally hacked into a US system called The Source. I found some kind of local terrorist cell on it. And, um, and, and anyway, I got a call from US Naval Intelligence. They came to my door in Rickmansworth and um, confiscated my computer and gave me a caution. So that, that's a, the closest I get to being convicted. <laughs> It was, it, was, it was a worthwhile part of you know, what makes you as an entrepreneur, I guess. Yeah. Um, so, uh, the photo box days. Um, now, again, one of those, um, is it a 16-year overnight success? Uh, yeah. Yeah? So um, over that period, so Nick talks about the worst period of his life um, being, or certainly professional life anyway, being the five-year stint of difficulty. Do you relate to the five years? Was yours longer, shorter? I think you can kind of interchange our stories, actually, just change a few names, and, and it works. It, definitely that, that period. Um, I think when I started in the year 2000, I knew a lot about tech but nothing about marketing. And we all expected an overnight success with the, the way the markets were going. And um, I guess I had two, two lows in that first five years. One was... Um, we, we failed to raise money in the summer of 2000. So we kind of burnt through our first half million quid really quickly and then couldn't raise uh, again because the markets were collapsed. Um, and somebody came along and said, we'll bail you out, we'll put in a million quid. And the money just never turned up. For about six weeks, we were chasing it, chasing it, and it got, it's a, another long story about money laundering, but it never turned up and we were about to burn out. Um, so we went and raised 100 grand from kind of friends and family and some existing investors. And we went into small business mode and basically hibernated for about three years. And that wasn't what I signed up for, you know, running a small business. And because we didn't know anything about marketing, we just didn't know how to accelerate it. And, you know, there, there was no Facebook, there was no Google AdWords, there weren't a lot of levers you could pull on. We could we could print flyers and leave them in tube stations, which is actually what we did. But uh, there wasn't a lot else that we could do. Banner ads didn't work, never worked. I don't know why anybody sold a banner ad. Um, and then I guess the, the, the second dip of that was exactly the same, 2005. I'd sold my car. I'd remortgaged the house to the absolute limit. You still haven't bought another car. <laughs> yeah. Same that, mode that of transport is it. for the last 12 um, years. I you know, gave up holidays and posh coffees. and. Um, 
And I just said to Mark, my, my partner who managed to drag into this, you know, we've either got to raise more money or, or just give up and go home. Um, and, and luckily, we, we did the first one. So. And as I remember, um, you ended up uh, trying to buy a company and or do a merger, but the whole thing sort of fell apart, and you ended up in quite a complicated situation. Can you give us a, a little insight into that moment? Because I think that's actually one of the key um, experiences that uh, is, is, is unique to you and also probably not broadly yeah. speaking. So you, I think whenever you're dealing with investors, you need to have a really kind of simple story to tell them. And our simple story was... We're going to expand. In, we, we're a market-leading um, photo company in the UK. We want to take the formula into Europe, and we need um, to raise money to, to do that, and we're going to go and buy an existing player in Europe. So that, that was the simple story, raise and buy. Um, so we went and found uh, a small Swiss company. There was only like seven people, but they were already covering 12 countries. So they were like an embryonic you know, pan-European photo company. And we said to them, you know, we'll buy you for this price. We're about to do an IPO on AIM. Uh, and they, uh, they said, great. So we agreed terms. We flew over to Geneva. And because we had no money, we were basically doing the due diligence ourselves. And I immediately, like, dived into their database, started to query all their orders, you know, check how many orders that they shipped each year, all that sort of stuff, and noticed that they'd never paid any VAT or never charged any VAT on any of their orders. And I said, how does that work? And they said, well, we're Swiss. And I said, but you're like shipping to Germany and printing in Germany. How does that work? And anyway, they, they didn't know that they had a huge tax liability, which was basically the value of the company. So the deal fell apart. So just for reference, we're Swiss is not a credible argument, <laughs> it turns out. No. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. 
You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. I think that paints the story quite nicely because you're starting to talk about expansion and where this all came from. So it's probably time to start talking about the process of selling to your competitor. So um, I think this is sort of broken up into different angles, really. But I guess um, one of them can be referred to as the dance, you know, the sort of flirtation period where you two would have come into contact with each other. You mentioned it was 2004. Yeah. Okay, so uh, what was that first contact? How did that happen? And did you walk away from that thing being like, God, oh, that Graham is just I, an arse, or he's no, the best no, no. guy what, ever? Like, what was what, the what happened? What happened there was that um, we were hemorrhaging cash, and we were desperately in need of, of any cash that we could make. And you were also hemorrhaging cash, I believe, at the time. And, was this <clears> the story <throat> you told each other at the time? Uh, well, no, we didn't mention the hemorrhaging cash bit, but I mean, actually, we probably, it probably would have been very cathartic if we had done. But, but, <clears throat> but the, the, so they had loads of, I think it was sort of uh, Christmas cards and, and various other things that need to be printed on card, and we had the kit to, to, to do that. We had and, one Xerox photocopier to print our cards, and it yeah, got to yeah. a point where we yeah. just maxed so, that so, out. So we, had, so we had the kit to, uh, to print... So what we realised is it was just a bit of extra revenue for us to cover, to cover some of our costs. Um, there, were, there were disadvantages to this. So we were used to basically selling um, hilariously rude birthday cards, one-offs, generally one-offs. And so nobody could really notice the, uh, the, any, any colour differences in the printing process. Whereas most of the things that were being sold that we were doing were wedding pictures. I think a lot of wedding... Actually, not Christmas. It was wedding... There were a lot of... Quite, the problems were with the wedding pictures, where professional photographers had used the service to print off wedding pictures. And we weren't very good at printing black. And, of course, you know, with lots of morning, uh, morning dress, there's a lot of black on there and white flecks appearing on it. And the other thing is particularly pedantic um, photographers saying, oh, no, but the, the Pantone shade here is, you know, is two degrees off where it is on the, the first card and the hundredth card. And Anyway, so there were, there were quality control issues that we'd never come across because, basically, our thing was all about how funny is the joke. And, and, and you know, so that kind of, it worked for a bit, and then I think you just decided to, to do your own thing. So the, the initial relationship was all about us desperately trying to find some way of making a little bit more money to pay the rent. And then, and then we kind of went, you know, didn't, out of contact, really. They had this really posh, giant machine, though, which we thought was awesome. It was, you know, the size of a mini metro, and it was, uh, it was capable of printing huge numbers of cards. So we, we had a little van that would go back and forth with, you know, a zip disk and a box of cards coming back. And sometimes the van wasn't available, and I, I went on my scooter down to Lots Road and um, dropped stuff off, so... And I, and I cursed it once because I, I came back and I did a trip to, to Australia to set up our Australian operation, came back and realised we got this massive backlog of stuff, including loads of your stuff, and I worked for three days without sleeping because to clear this backlog of... of and your, your stuff occasionally would just, for some reason, always get stuck in it. And, um, <laughs> um, and it, you know, so it was... I remember it well. <laughs> not, not fondly, it would turn <laughs> out. Um, OK, so... Um, you know, at this point, you've, you've met each other. Had you formed any kind of, like, bond? Were you like, let's go out for a drink? Was it just, what, like, over email? Were you friendly in any kind of way? Like, get, set, set the scene. Like, what uh, is this first interaction I, with you both like? Uh, to be honest, I don't think so. I think we were both so desperately busy with our own businesses that the last thing on our mind was going to the pub and having a pint. I, yeah. I think we just both recognised similar souls in a similar stage of their lives. 
um, you know, fighting with this growing uh, personal baby that, that we needed to feed all the time. And um, so, yeah, that social, social side of it wasn't there. I think we, we treated each other like suppliers. You know, I was su supplying cash, you were supplying cards, and yeah, you yeah, know, that's how yeah. it worked. And in retrospect, do you feel like that's one of the most common and most meaningful ways to have an exit, to actually be working with a partner in some respect in the first place? Yeah, I mean, I remember discussing it, and I, and I, I don't quite know how it came up, but it was probably around 2005 or 2006 maybe even that um, we had a CFO, James Longley, and he, he had a chat with you, and I think he, he felt there was some deal there and he came back to me with a number anyway. I don't know if it ever came directly from you. No, I, I, th I think there was, there was a point at which <clears throat> if we could have sold the business in 2004, 2005 for a modest amount, we would have been, we would have been, we, we would have been delighted. I mean, simply to have come out of uh, bankruptcy would have been a good thing. Um, Do you uh, remember what the modest amount was? That you were floating I've got with, funny, yeah? funny if you mentioned it the other day, but... Uh, yeah, so, so uh, anyway, I remember James coming back to the office and he said, do you know, if you want to buy Moonpig, you can buy it now, yeah. and Nick wants two million quid. And I said, fuck off. We haven't got that kind of cash, and there's no <laughs> way a few old cards are worth that. Yeah. So, and so when was that? That was maybe around 2005. Well, so, so 2004, because in 2004, we had a down round. We'd originally raised money at a valuation. The highest money, we raised money at 5 million. And then in 2004, we had a down round, and we raised money at, money at a pre-money valuation of 1 million. OK. Um, so, and you were trying to sell it for two. And that was in 2005 or so. 2004, sorry. And then yeah. when did you actually exit? What year? 2011. And 2011. So there was like a 118 million pound discrepancy. So, yeah. <laughs> okay, so, you know, when, when framed like that, how do you feel about those next few years that ensued? I mean, what was, I mean, what was the turning point to get £118 million in difference in value over, you know, such a short period? Well, the, the, difference, the difference is breaking even. I mean, the, the moment that we broke even, you suddenly think, right, that's it. We, no longer, we know we're going to survive. And we've got patience. We can carry on going. It, because we were always growing at about, we, we were growing virally, um, so 20, 30% a year. It, and, and all, but we just simply had to survive. Um, and, but, it, but there was a period in 2004 when I was worried that we weren't going to survive. So frankly, if anyone had said, I'll give you two million for the business, I would have taken it. And, and that's 60 times multiple sounds, you know, sounds funny. But when I think about all the things that we valued about the business in 2011, none of them were there in 2000. Well, very few of them were there in 2004. Yeah, like, and Nick was still there in both scenarios. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so the, yeah. Yeah, he's not sure if he liked that joke. <laughs> he's still he's still processing it. No, no, I, I, I'm always a, a, you know a, a great a great believer in you know when you come to when, as you know when you come to sell a company, um, you, you don't want to be seen as an utterly valuable part of the team. Uh, it comes down to my dribble and shake um, theory. When when you know. Can you share, share the dribble and shake theory? Oh, so so, the, so my my theory is when you come to sell your business, you you don't want to have to stay there for another three years working for somebody else. Um, so you want to give the impression of being a complete cretin because they think, well, this business is fantastic. And imagine if this cretin wasn't running it, it would be even better. <laughs> um, so, so then they say, no, honestly, you can leave on day one. You leave now. We'll give it your taxi. Um, but, and, but, so I didn't have to stay on. Afterwards. So were you, were you not amazed that this person that had come to you in 2004 
with his business worth £2 million, who'd quite impressed you, had suddenly, in 2011 or whatever it is, turned into a complete moron with £120 million <laughs> value. Was that not one of the most confusing moments of your life? I, to be honest, I outsourced the, uh, the, 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 the negotiation. So we had a new CEO in 2011, Stan, who'd been there since 2006, and yeah. he was the one that was talking to Nick quite yeah. regularly yeah. in those years. So, you know, Stan was telling us what was going on with this and, and, and how long did you have to stay? I mean, you know, how, how good was About your artist interpretation of Dribble and Shake? Oh, I, t I, I mean, I, I took the money and uh, left. I mean, that's uh, <laughs> straight away. They with ushered out of the door. <laughs> I think you left before, didn't you? Um, yeah, well, actually... <laughs> you probably no, my, got a phone call on a yacht or something. My, 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 <laughs> my, my argument was, actually, that I spent the, the year, because I'd handed over to a new management team so that I could spend the time on the deal. So at the point of the deal... There was no day-to-day -day work for me left to do, so um, so I disappeared okay. off. Well, let, let's go through the deal then. So the negotiation period. Yeah. Um, do you remember what that was like, and how long did it last, and how did it make you feel? I mean, these are the kind of things that you, you sort of hope as an entrepreneur you're going to experience at some point in your life, and so well, take us through that. Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing is that you start speaking, you start looking for the, all the obvious candidates in, as trade buyers. Um, <clears throat> when it comes to uh, say, private equity buyers or VC, and your corporate finance advisor knows those people well, they know what they're looking for and they deal with them. Um, but when it comes to trade buyers, you generally know most of them. So you would, you know, you'd call... So I remember calling the people at Vistaprint and, and saying, you know, we're both in the digital printing business, let's get together, have a chat about printers or something. And, and of course, you both know what the... the un, you know, it's, it's just a little bit of a dance um, as you get to know each other and, and, and you gradually sort of, you know, lift, lift your skirts a little bit to show a, li a little... You need to understand a little bit more about their business and whether or not you would fit within their strategic framework and try to understand whether it would make a deal. Now, the really interesting point about Photobox was that we were a much bigger business than Photobox. So <clears throat> when I first started talking to Stan about, about them, the idea of them buying us, if you looked at it on paper, you'd think, well, hang on, but this is a company, I, I think it was, you know, it, it wasn't really making any money at the time. And we were making about 11 million a year. So it seemed uh, illogical. Of course, if you actually look at it another way and say, well, if you put those two businesses side by side and brought in a whole load more money to fund that, then, yeah, that would work. Um, so so the, sometimes there are deals that are possible um, and one of the reasons it also worked was because Stan was effectively been hired as a CEO by the venture capitalists. So, so for him, the, he didn't have a controlling stake in Photobox. So for the idea of him putting those two businesses together then made him a CEO of a much, much bigger company um, and, you know, with all the stock options and things that go with that. So that was an attractive deal. He had a bigger train set to play with. Had it been, you know, had it... Had, actually, had it been you on the other side, and you thought, well, I, if I now own 51% of my company. If I buy this company, I'll own 15%, and I might get thrown out of my own company before I've had a chance. To so it, it's, it's, it's different dynamics. So understanding, understanding the, the psychology behind it and, and, and what's in it for both parties is quite important. Was part of your um, process personally that you just... I mean, it sounds to me, you know, you had the bigger revenues, you, had, you were profitable at the point, you were... Bigger in every way, like you said. Yeah. But you were totally on board with the idea of being bought and put within the photo box group. Does that just come down to a personal preference? As in, were you just like, you know, I'm going to do this whole dribble and shake shtick and bugger off because I've got other things I'd rather do in my life? Is that basically the point? Well, where I, 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 mean, to? I think I got to the point where I'd added as much as I was going to add to Moonpig. If I'd stayed on any longer, it would have been out of laziness more than anything. Um, and. Uh, <clears throat> And it was a question of finding a good home for it where it would, where it would thrive. Now, I mean, obviously, 
there's always a moral, you know, difficult point. If someone's going to offer you 150 million quid uh, and they, there's a chance they might trash the business and someone else is going to offer a really good home but offer you 80, um, I'd probably take the 150. Uh, but, um, but actually, if you, you know, generally speaking, you've got, you've got a range of companies that would do a good job of it. And I could see that Photobox was a, it was a very well-run business. And, uh, Talking about culture integration, though, so obviously yeah. you didn't stick around for the culture integration, but I guess um, a question I have, being an animal lover, is you used to have a pig that you would walk around Tower Bridge, We, we had an office pig, yeah. Yeah, you had an office pig. We what had happened two. to the office pig we when had, you took it into Photobox? Did you have to inherit two pigs? Was we inherited some micro pigs. You did. Yes. They weren't that micro by that point. They were actually about this big. When we got them, they were that big, and a year later, they were that big. And we had a license from DEFRA, because in order to do this, we had to turn the office into a farm and get a farm license. And then we had to get a license to, for, for animal transportation. So we had to get a license to walk them around the Tate Modern uh, lawn. Um, and, uh, th but they refused to cross the road, so you had to pick them up and carry them across the road. And it, after a while, it became impossible to carry them, so they went back to... And was this farm. one of the more attractive things that you know, <laughs> made you want to buy Moonpig? Like, we get to carry these giant pigs, which is totally on Photobox brand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but there, there was a strong culture at Moonpig. So, I mean, the, 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 the rational side of it for us was um, that Photobox was growing, but we were VC-backed, and we were five years into having raised VC money, and we knew that the investors were looking for some kind of structure towards an exit. And uh, we got approached ourselves to be acquired by a, a much bigger company in 2010, and it got really close to happening, you know, final... SPA agreements, uh, personal contracts, everything. And at the very last moment, it fell through. Um, and we reflected on what, what had gone wrong. Uh, and in, when you're about to be acquired, you don't actually control the deal much. All you can do is do things to improve your odds, mm. right? So we, we reflected that there were things we could have done to have a better outcome. One of them was have more of an auction, to have multiple parties interested in buying us. Um, but also to have things like IPO as an option. So we, we came to the conclusion that we were too small. Uh, I think we might have been turning over about, I don't know, 80 or 90 million at the mm -hmm. time, but that ruled out a number of things. We were too small. Um, we, we had this one huge seasonal peak that a lot of potential buyers saw as very risky. You know, we basically did like a third of all of our revenue and all of our profit in three weeks at the end of the year. Um, we were very focused on one particular product vertical, which people might have thought was a bit limiting. And um, anyway, we, we just thought um, there is a solution to this, and it's called Moonpig. We can immediately double in size. We can have two major product verticals. We can have four peaks a year. And we can have a recognizable brand in the portfolio. Um, and there, there were a few other benefits as well. So, I think that's when Stan kind of got on the phone and started schmoozing you yeah, a lot yeah. more. And, uh, and, and so it, it made perfect rational sense. Just speaking about, you just touched on brand here. Like, how important do you think the fact that you turned Moonpig with that jingle, with that incredibly successful TV campaign, how important do you think that whole bit was? Forget the revenue, forget the growth. Just that alone. Do you think that was well, really meaningful I, in this I, transaction? I always, it, it always used to amuse me when people were writing about it afterwards, when they would say, Photobox, owner of Moonpig.com. Um, uh, and they always so so it was because Moonpig was the the brand that was that was known. I think when when we in 2006 
when we broke even, we had 3% awareness in the UK. We used to do a Mori poll every year to work out our awareness in the population. And, and it, was, it was over 90% um, by the time we sold. So it was, it was pretty, pretty, pretty well known. Nick um, talks about going back to a school and talking. I was invited back to talk at my comprehensive school on speech day. And when I got there, they said, would you mind just talking about Moonpig? Because that's all the kids know. <laughs> so, so I got up on stage, and some you know, 14-year-old with an oboe or something played the Moonpig jingle. <laughs> um, Must have been a very proud moment. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, I, I, to, to be fair, of course, it was, we had a lot of humor. There was a lot of sort of content attached. Whereas, in many respects, Photobox is more of a service, um, there was a lot of content attached to Moonpig um, in that we had a lot of humorous, really amusing greeting cards and so on. So, so it was easier to build a brand based on, uh, on, on Moonpig. Um, so, um... OK, and uh, just Graham. Now, as I understand it, you know, Nick did the whole dribble and shake dance, so he gets to sell his company and then just up and leave. Awesome. Your story is slightly different. I mean, you've just done this transaction. Do you get to go to the pub and celebrate, or is it like another night working until 11 p.m.? Like, what's it like to buy the company? Like, we've heard how great it might be to sell it because you get to bugger off, go skiing, have a lovely time. What about the person that buys the company? So, what's the reality like? So I think it's a totally different experience to be a founder who sells your company than be the founder, a founder who buys a company. And in retrospect, which would you rather be? Well, you know, I got there eventually, right? But it, it's... Um, all that I saw was Nick and, and a small entourage of people around him went off into the sunset to do these amazing fun <laughs> projects with bags stuffed full of cash. And they left you with the pigs. And, and I was left with the pigs with integrating a website on a completely different tech stack. No, you know, no big founder share sale. And um, so it was a different experience, that's for sure. I mean, I can't complain, right? I, I had... Uh, Were you better actually, at all at the time? I, I, had, I had good advice from people, and, and since 2006, which is when we did our first merger and acquisition type deal, where we merged with a French company, I progressively got to sell a few shares every time. And these things just like, you know, paid down the second mortgage and all these sorts of things. So over time, I was gradually de-risking. And, and the Moonpig deal was, was actually quite good for me because we managed to move house in the middle of it. And, and I remember being on the phone to the estate agent and on the phone to our CFO, like, can I do this or not, kind of thing. Um, but it, it wasn't a life-changing uh, event for me, but it was for you, and, and mine came later. Okay, so uh, from your point of view, um, you then had to stay at the company, or had to, wanted to, of course, the company that you founded. Um, for how many years after that transaction? Another five? Another five years, yeah. And uh, the, the moment where you actually sold, like, what was your process like? You know, looking at the process of, you, you, you by that point, bought a bunch of companies. How different was your process in selling the company, do you think, from having been on both sides of the table? Well, first of all, I think, you know, you buy companies because they they make a lot of sense to buy to add to yours. There's got to be synergy there. There's got to be shareholder value. You can't just take you know a hundred and twenty million quid company and a hundred million quid company and make two twenty. It's got to be worth more than that because otherwise you just keep them separate. It's easier. Um, so you've got to find a way to extract that synergy. I remember trying for about a year to figure out how we could get Synergy out of the tech platforms and just couldn't do it. And in the end, we left Moonpig completely separate. 
Um, but we did find quite a lot of synergy in other areas like manufacturing and some marketing and, um, and product, product evolution. Yeah, and, and Jersey, which is a, well, Guernsey, which is another story, um, which we might come on to later. Uh, but we did acquire some other businesses. We acquired one in Spain that um, gave us a tremendously big boost to profitability. They were a company that wasn't growing, that were the largest uh, photo book producer in Iberia, but added a lot of profit to the bottom line. And we bought a business in uh, Germany to give us, um, you know, effectively we were European market leaders, but we didn't have any presence in Germany, which was a bit weird. So we, we did that because we knew that in our future story that would be important. So that, yeah, there were quite a few big deals, a few smaller ones. Um, and uh, you just keep, keep at it, you know, keep working at it. But there is a cultural piece as well, and, and the Moonpig culture was unique. I know there was a little bit of tissue rejection going on at the beginning because the Moonpig culture was, hey, we're having fun every day, and we're having parties, and we have pigs in the office. And we, by comparison, were, I mean, we, were, we were still kind of startup culture, but we were very boring by comparison. It, well, there, was, there was quite a stark difference in the two, in the two offices. It was very, <clears throat> one was very utilitarian, and, uh, and the thing is, by, by its very nature, we spent, you know, if you have to come up with lots of amusing things each day, you, you can't all turn up to work in, in suits and ties and work in a, in a dull office. So, so we had to create that, that atmosphere. Um, and that merging those two was quite, was quite interesting, because in the end, they, you ended up in that. Um, I remember going back to visit the new office when you merged it back in, in Southwark. And, uh, and actually, I thought you did a really good job of, yeah. of um, combining the two cultures. But the Moonpig culture won. In the end, we just ended up expanding the moon pig culture around ourselves. So. Yeah, getting more animals, yeah. turning into <laughs> yeah. big farms. Llamas. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But as we went through M&A, we had to kind of make some of those cultural shifts uh, to make it work. And then whilst you were busy grinding it out, trying to turn uh, this acquisition into a big, meaningful exit, um, Nick's running off on BBC, um, becoming a dragon on Dragon's Den. So how did that opportunity come about? And... How did that make you feel? Jealous, he's a bastard, exactly. That says everything you need to know. Yeah, he yeah, knew, yeah, he yeah. knew you were on it, yeah. he just didn't want busy. to look at it. Yeah, sure. Uh, now, how did it came out, the BBC just called me out of the blue and said, would you like to do it? And um, I mean, there was an element, you had to go and do a screen test to work out um, how you come across on television. Um, and, uh, well, they ignored that then. And they completely ignored. They couldn't find anybody else, so they came back to me. And, and, uh, and I, I, at the time, I just thought, no, why would I want to do that? And then I, th I, I figured, I used to watch it when it first came out. I thought it was, quite, it was great fun. And I, the, I remember being quite young watching it and thinking, I'd love to, wouldn't it be great to be a dragon? And, and I thought, well, I might as well say, say yes, because if I do it for a season and don't like it, I can always just stop it. Um, and um, um, so I did it, and it was, a, it was a blast. It was really good fun making it. The, the downside is you end up with lots and lots of small businesses to look afterwards. afterwards but. Um, what was it like actually working with Deborah Meaden? Is she as pleasant as she seems in real life? No, De Deborah Meaden is made to look like this sort of ogre uh, on, on telly, but actually, one, she's a neighbour of mine uh, down, in, down in Wiltshire, and we, we get on really, really well. She's, she's delightful um, and very funny, but it just doesn't come across. They, they, they deliberately don't put that across. Okay, so Graham, you've, you've, you've asked, like, whilst this is all going on, obviously you're going through a transaction, trying to get to your exit. Um, you're now both out of the companies that you founded. 
Um, is there, you know, is there like a whole um, like relief experience of that? You know, it's in the past, you get to move on. Like, what are you doing with your time now? So, uh, well, there's, these deals don't happen overnight. There's always, um, uh, a, a, you know, many months of lead up to the deal and, and many kind of changes in direction and, and and even with the private equity sale that we did in 26 early 2016 it started mid 2015 there were a few false starts and even uh, like about two or three weeks before the end we thought it might not happen there was a major spanner in the works that we, we lost a lot of sleep over um, and and I think when the when the day came it, I, I'd never had that kind of big exit before I didn't know what to think I remember walking across Millennium Bridge and I phoned Mark who'd been out of the business for four years at this point. And I said, well, it's done, you know, um, uh, you know, how do you feel? And he said, yeah, great, you know, and all that. And, and I was chewing gum and I stopped the phone and I suddenly did this sharp inhale of breath and I thought, oh shit, I've just inhaled a piece of gum. And I got back home and said to my wife, she, my wife said, oh, let's go out to eat. Um, like just normal go out. And I said, do you know what? I feel a bit weird. So on the night of the deal, I spent four hours in A&E and I hadn't inhaled a piece of gum at all, so. <laughs> <laughs> so completely psychosomatic. Yeah. Amazing, okay. And that didn't obviously happen to you because you, you were just out, done, clear, fine. No, no, but, but we also had, a, had a, a, a hitch at the last moment that nearly derailed the whole process. Um, and um, uh, thank you very much. Um, um, Drinks on tap, it's fantastic. Yeah, you obviously just look like you needed it. You, you, got, you got water, I got, I got beer. Brilliant. Um, <laughs> uh, so the, the, the thing that nearly derailed ours is that I had this mate of mine from university who'd invested, and he was living in Malaysia at the time, and, and uh, uh, at some point, and he'd set up a Malaysian company to, uh, he, to, to do his private equity investments, and he'd owned the shares of his Malaysian company, Kahaya Legenda, um, it was called. And anyway, he then moved to Australia, and he kind of slightly hadn't really paid much attention to the paperwork on this company. At the very last moment, um, as we were about to do the deal, um, one of the lawyers did, just went to check that all of the shareholders actually exist. And they discovered that Kahaya Legenda had been struck off the list of companies on the Malaysian share register. And it's simply because Johnny had moved house in Australia, and the, and the, the Malaysian uh, partner's been saying, you've got this little company that owns a few shares in some tin pot little company called Moonpig, hasn't had any transactions in it, do you want us to strike it off? And he didn't answer for about a year. And, and they struck it off. So he had, in one week, he had to fly to Malaysia and get a company reinstated onto the, onto the, in, into, into the Malaysian equivalent of company's house, which would have, been, which would have taken months and months in Britain. Um, and I don't know how he managed it. But that would have derailed the deal. Mm. So I guess from lessons learned, always check the paperwork. Yeah. Yeah? And uh, do you feel like, as the entrepreneurs, like that's very much your responsibility? Do you trust lawyers enough to do this, or absolutely not? I think the first time that we did a deal was 2006, when we merged with this French company. And they, the lawyer said, you're going to spend about 12 hours in a room. Uh, and I, I couldn't believe, I mean, I'd had three kids at that point, and uh, OK, one of the labors was longer than 12 hours, but the other two were less. And I thought, it can't be 12 hours for a legal agreement. And, and it was 13 hours the first time. And you just sit in this room and work through endless amounts of paperwork. So it's unbelievable. So, sorry. But I do think you have to be absolutely on, you've got to be on top of it because they do, they do occasionally miss things. And were there any, like in retrospect, do you remember any, uh, you know, we won't call it foul play, but, you know, any moments between your deal where what you said it was, was it slightly different to the reality of what you were going through? 
I mean, now that you're both there, you can obviously admit that you were. I can't remember anything around. about this deal. I remember another deal we did, where it was actually, you know, the one in 2006, where we we thought there were a lot of issues with um, the French company, and they were like, no, 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 it's all fine, it's all fine, you know, no, those millions of credits we gave out, they're they're expired, and. And, um, and basically everything we worried about turned out to be true in that and Was one. it too late? Well, we just had to fix it. It was our company at that stage, yeah. so. <laughs> so yes. Yes. Good. Okay, before we move on to the next bit, which is the art of angel investing, so you can give some, uh, some tips to those looking to angel invest and also maybe some advice from those looking to raise money. Um, can you, I mean, obviously, you know, not just uh, Moonpig in terms of, um, good, humoured things that people print. Can you remember some of the funnier things that uh, people might have printed? What were some of the more ridiculous things in your experience uh, that you remember? I mean, there must have been some pretty outrageous stuff, especially for you, Nick. Um, well, we had... <clears throat> Not what you printed. We, we had... We, we used to have a screen on the wall, and as people uploaded photographs onto greeting cards, um, these, they, they would live just pop up on the screen. Uh, every once in a while, of course, there would be an erect penis. Um, which uh, So for a while, we had to stop these things coming up live on the screen because we'd be in the middle of a meeting and suddenly... <laughs> it didn't happen that often. But it just happened often enough in the middle of meetings to, to be a problem. Um, and every once in a while, we would, we would get a card that would come through the system and, and, and we think, well, we, we probably can't print this. So it would go to senior management. So senior management would sit and think, can we print this? I remember there's one card, which is a magazine spoof front cover with five pictures on the front of, of a chap whose uh, who's, who's better half was being filleted by uh, 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 someone else. And, and the, the caption on the card was, you bastard, you gave me VD. And, which, <laughs> you know, to be fair, Clintons don't have a card for that. Um, <laughs> but... But uh, so we wrote back to him and we, we looked up his, his customer account. It turns out he was actually a very good customer. So we said, dear Mr. Soso, thank you very much for your recent order. Um, <clears throat> we, we do feel, however, that perhaps uh, it might contravene our, our obscenity uh, rules. And perhaps we feel that on this occasion, uh, you might find another way of expressing your sentiments to your, to your friend. Um, and uh, as we meanwhile returned, re refunded your card. And we look forward to seeing you on the site very soon. Um, and um, he did come back and buy again. But that was one of the few cards we actually had to ban. <laughs> And Graham, I presume you had a lower tolerance level for what you would ban? I yeah, I mean, we had similar stories, really. We, we used to have something called Smut Patrol because people just treated it as a game to upload pornography to us or th their own personal pornography, um, which I think Mark called Boudoir Adventures or something like that. But anyway, we'd see those as a ticker across the bottom of the screen and occasionally we'd spot stuff that we had to intervene. I do remember one of the worst times was... We accidentally we, we printed a naked calendar for a German customer and accidentally shipped it to the wife of one of our investors. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, yeah, we mm. and that that actually was the biggest problem. It was not shipping it to the person who'd ordered it. It was getting the orders crossed. Mm. So yeah. Now coming on to the serious bit. You've now both exited your companies. You're both prominent angel investors in the UK. Um, I guess let's start with the, uh, the, the, the high-level stuff. Like, How many um, startup pitches do you reckon roughly you see per how many you actually invest in? We'll start with Nick, because I guess you must have seen way too many being on a show like Dragon's Den. I mean, I, the thing is, I, I, I could... I, I get to see hundreds in a year and I, I, I probably only invest in two or three in, in, in a normal year. When I was doing Dragon's Den, it was about five. Um, you can only do about uh, two or three. So 
uh, very often the rejection is not is not like this is not a good business idea. It's it's more that I've got I've, you know there's a limitation on what I can do each year. Um, there's a limitation on what you can keep an eye on, and um, um, so it's not that it's not that uh, only three out of a hundred pass the muster. It's more that. Uh, I try desperately not to do angel deals, and unfortunately, at least three out of 100 um, make me break that rule. So, um, so it's, you know, I often go into meetings, and there's one in particular, so I'm not going to invest, I'm not going to invest. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, um, and end up investing. Um, so it, it, it's, uh, they're all interesting, and they're all fascinating. Uh, it's just that you can only do so many in a year. And Graham, do you have the same attitude? Do you think they're all interesting, they're all fascinating, or do you only invest in ones that elicit a certain emotion? Well, not really. I had a burst of activity. So I did some going, like, really tiny deals going back to 2007, and it was more like helping out a mate with the grant or something like that. Um, but um, I, I did... I've done about 30 in total, um, and I have to say, as an investment strategy, it sucks. I've only had one return, and that was the grand, 1,000 euros, uh, came back as 8,000. But uh, you know, five or six of the companies I invested in have gone bust. Um, most are in the doldrums. And so it, it doesn't work as an investment strategy. I do it to support you know, young entrepreneurs who are passionate about what they're doing, because I was the, on the receiving end of EIS investment in 2000. Um, so I had this burst of activity. I've, I've stopped a lot of that now um, because it does take a lot of time and you can't afford to do a lot of due diligence. Um, so I, I and, and a lot of companies you invest in have follow-ons where they want you to participate. So I keep a little bit in reserve for that. Um, occasionally somebody pops up on the radar where either I think that sounds amazing or like it's some 19-year-old entrepreneur who I just think this guy's putting everything into it. Um, but actually, I'm focusing more on social impact these days. But it's occasionally, and how many do I get? I get them like three a day on LinkedIn, even though I have that note saying, you know, please don't pitch me because <laughs> I only invest in things where people, I know them already. Okay. And if you've done 30, how many have you done, Nick? Uh, actually, no, 27. Okay, very similar. And as a percentage of your, um, I guess, like net wealth that you're willing to invest, like what does that equate to? Um, well, I think it probably doesn't make so much, much sense to have more than 10, 15%. You need to be able... The critical thing is you need to be able to say, it's not working, I'll walk away from that. If it, if it, if, if it would hurt you, if it failed, then you probably shouldn't be doing it. And well, I'll, I'll do it in absolute terms. I, I think I'll probably put in about 600 grand to angel investments, but it's probably worth about 490 right now. So, yeah. Okay, so you need to take some tips from Nick <laughs> yes. in that case. Well, I, I mean, I've, I've had a couple. Of, I had a couple of big wins, but things that can skew the figures a bit. Um, and I had a, a, a big win on a New Zealand software business that uh, quadrupled in, in eighteen months, um, which was compensated for some of my failures. But that's the way it works. You need yeah. to every investment you do, you need to believe it can be ten times return or you wouldn't do it. Because you need 10 times return from one or two uh, you know, out of 10 to, to pay for all the ones that fail. Yeah, and I'd say it's the same. I'd, I'd say the same about what, one or two out of 10 will give you a really decent multiple. And some of them have the, the good grace to die immediately. And, and, the, and the ones that are, the painful ones are the zombies in the middle, who every year, you know, oh, we need more money. Isn't and, that technically what happened with Moonpig? Um, well, yes, it is. I mean, you know, I got to a point where none of my investors would put any more money in. Yeah. And, of course, I speak to them now, and they say, oh, if I wish we put money in that last round. I go, I bet you did. But, uh, but um, 
So with a lot of those things, it's very difficult when they are in that stage. You think, is this a Moonpig moment of 2004, where this last bit of money is the bit that's going to nudge it over the edge? Um, or is it a bit like um, one of the other, you know, sort of less successful ones I've had, where you just keep on putting good money, throwing good money after bad? Well, actually, there are, there are four levels that our VCs talked about. There is, like, you know, zero failures. There's Instagram there's the zombies, and then there was reassuringly boring. And that's what Photobox was. The investors would come along every three months, pat us on the head, and go, OK, they're never going to make us you know, 20 times return. But they're profitable, and they're growing, and you know, OK. But they gave us like five minutes attention every few months. Mm. But I mean, if the stage above that is Instagram, would that make Moonpig Instagram? The Instagram of the card? Moon, Moonpig is not, is not, it was not an Instagram. I mean, Moonpig, so, I mean, to put it into context, we put... 2.7 million in, and in total, when you take all the dividends, we took 150 out, because uh, I think we paid out about 30 million in dividends before we sold. Um, so, uh, so that was a reasonable, you know, it's a reasonable ratio, but it's not, it's not an Instagram. And I guess the, the the thing that I pick up on that is essentially, you know, you've just said about you know the zombies and what you don't look for in, a, in an angel investment. Yet yeah, it's actually the experience you personally went through. So, do you think that's because? Um, you know how, um, how much you personally sacrificed in your journey. You talked about you know, all those mortgages on your homes, et cetera, to pay the marketing director. You know, do you think you know how much you suffered to get to that point, and when you compare it to other people in that zombie moment, they haven't suffered as much, so you don't have as much conviction? I, I, I generally like to invest in people who are prepared to put, their, uh, put some skin in the game. Um, I mean, the, the real difficult thing is when someone comes along and says, well, look, I, I, I've got this great idea, uh, but I haven't got any money, um, and I'd like you to put a million quid into it. Um, and you think, well, if this goes wrong uh, in, in a month's time, there were lots of times when I would have given up with Moonbeak, but I couldn't because, because I, I'd invested everything I owned in it. I had so much at stake in it, and I didn't give up, and I fought because of that. Um, and if I hadn't had anything invested in it, then it would have been a lot easier just to say, I'm sorry, this isn't working. Um, so, that, so the skin in the game bit is really important to, uh, to, to an investor because it keeps somebody fighting for longer. Okay, so before we go to um, audience Q&A, and I know we had some questions already on um, social media, which our beautiful assistant Rich will be reading out for us. Um, I, uh, I guess I just wanted to ask uh, a couple of final things. The first of which is, what are your top tips um, boring though they may be, Graham's already warned me that his are going to be boring because, you know, here's the pat on the back type. Um, but what are the top tips on securing an exit? Um, so it'd be interesting to get your perspective. And then the second question is, what are your top tips in, uh, in, in angel investing? Like what to look for and what to put your money in? Okay, so securing an exit. So first of all, we'll probably agree on some of these. Just keep talking to everybody that is a potential acquirer or, or you know, a company you would merge with. Always be out there networking and, and building those relationships because one of those people could, could be that exit. Um, I, I think you've also got to keep, keep an eye on the story you're telling, the narrative. At some point, you're going to go out and raise money or you're going to you know, have this pitch deck to sell the business, and it's got to show... You know, I remember ours very well. It said, this is what we do. This is the market we operate in. We've had, you know, 25% compound annual growth rate for the last, you know, million years. And, uh, you know, it's all looking rosy. And these are the vectors that will get us to another 10 times growth in the future. And you have to tell that story, but you have to deliver on all of the component parts necessary to prove that you're on that track. So you have to 
constantly think about where are you going and am I tracking the right line? And if you're not, then change the story or, or actively take steps to, um, to, to get to where you need to be. You can't just like rock up uh, two months before you want to sell a business and say, hey, we think it's going really well, but you know, bias, because you have to tell that story. And, that, that, and that the thing about don't, not over-promising is really important because, because during the course of the sale, <clears throat> if you've promised that and you're actually delivering that, you're constantly on the back foot. Um, the, the, other, the other really important thing I remember is that you always have to have more than one offer on the table to make it work, <clears throat> but the second offer can be business as usual. So if, you're, if your backstop is, look, we could just carry on running this for profit, um, and we'd be perfectly happy. You have to be perfectly happy with not doing a deal. Uh, because if you've already bought the house in, in the Cayman Islands and, and you've already uh, you know, booked the tickets to get out, then th you're overcommitted. Um, and you're overcommitted to an exit and you have no other option. The option, your, your number, in, in the absence of anybody else bidding, your second option has to be business as usual, and that's your backstop. Um, because that's the point at which you say, well, screw you, I'm not taking that price because I'm better off not selling. That point about over-committing, though, or uh, you know, over-promising um, is really important because all deals get delayed by months. Yeah, yeah. And, and if you're into the period where you said, I'm going to be at this level and you're well short of it, then, then lots of questions and, get asked. And they will chip away. So, whereas if, you, if, you're, if it's the other way around and you said that and you're actually doing that, then, then you can just ratchet the price up. Is that what happened in this scenario? No, I, th I think, I think we, we were actually absolutely on track. We had a really, really good modeling system. Um, so we knew exactly what we were likely to be doing in a year, plus or minus 5%. Six and, months later was a different story, though. Yeah, so just before... Oh, yes, OK. Yeah, no, just before, that, there, yeah. is, there is a funny story um, involving Guernsey, not Jersey, it turns out, um, of um, uh, a, a technical difficulty that you had with, um, with tax. So all... All deals, in my experience, have had a technical difficulty with tax. So um, we had one with Delaware in 2016. We had one with Switzerland in 2005. And we had a major one with Moonpig in 2011. Yeah. Which is Moonpig benefited from uh, special tax jurisdiction in, in Guernsey, where there was well, no actually, VAT. Like, because it, it was actually, it's actually a UK rule um, that was, uh, and then a European rule that was brought in. It was a European-wide rule, actually, that says we, we won't bother processing uh, international transactions under 18 quid because actually the cost of processing was less than the amount of money that would, that would be collected. It was designed to save money and to make things more efficient. The problem is people took advantage of it and started setting up um, and, you, know, you think, how can I send something into the European Union from outside the European Union and, and, um, and, and take advantage of that VAT thing? And, okay, hands up, I did that. And, um, and because, of course, most everything we sold was under 18 quid. Um, so we set up in Guernsey, and it meant that we didn't have to charge VAT on our cards. And the difference to that was, um, you know, our turnover at that time was 45 million quid. So it was 20% 20, 20 of 45 million quid. It's quite a lot of money. Yeah, but uh, Graham's problem, not yours. No, I, you know, we, and we had this discussion during the negotiation. We had a discussion about how likely is that to happen. And the thing is, it actually made no sense for the government to remove it. We weren't thinking about whether or not someone might do a little bit of political posturing. And the problem was that the t what actually happened in the end is that I think the Chancellor felt that um, he needed to be seen to be having a win, even though in reality they didn't make it, they didn't save any money by doing it. And uh, that's why it got removed. And how much did it cost you, Graham? Well, it got removed 
five months after we did the deal, uh, after all the advisors said this will never disappear, it's been there for 40 years. Um, and there were, there were clauses in the contract where we got to claw back a little bit from the eight, deal. Eight, eight million quid, I think. Uh, eight million back, quid. Yeah. But, but I think the thing was, Moonpig was hugely profitable, and suddenly to take 20% out of the retail price halved the profit or more than half, the, half profit. the profit yeah, yeah. Uh, and so we would have probably would have paid half the price for them yeah. um, it actually all kind of <laughs> you know five months later anyway it, it all that it two all, million pound deal sounds really good right now it all washed out in the end because Moonpig was a, a structurally very profitable company yeah. and we managed to optimize in other ways and Guernsey Post took a lot of the hits and and took some of uh, you know I'm, I'm, yeah, on the positive side, a lot of people, you know, when they sell their company, they feel a feeling of regret because they lose a sense of identity and everything else. Six months after that deal, I had no regrets about having sold it. So, um, uh, but the good thing, the good thing though, is the very fact that we can share a saver. Uh, Photobox did a wonderful job of, uh, of, of running the business and, and actually completely recovered from that and did various things. And Moonpig performed very well. I think it's delivered. It's one of those rare examples where both sides, you don't want to sell a company and look at it afterwards. If it had, if it had, if it had sold for billions, I think, Ugh, I sold too early. Actually, it's, it's done well enough that, um, that you're very happy with the deal and not so well that I regret having sold it. So it's kind of, you know, a nice, comp nice, nice somewhere in between. True. OK, and then the last question, which was your top tips for what you look for in angel investments? Like the top three things that you just go for? Um, OK, so the, the, the main things that I go for, I, I go for things which um, I look first, first of all at is it... Um, uh, is there any evidence that people want it? Um, can you actually make much margin out of it? Um, and, uh, and, then is it and is it scalable? Um, and then, of course, the critical thing is, is this the right management team to deliver it? Uh, those, those are the four things that I, that I look for. I've seen lots of things that are wonderful solutions, but nobody actually wants to pay for them. Um, I've seen wonderful solutions that you can't really make money out of, and I've seen wonderful business ideas but um, run by people that you wouldn't trust to sit the right way around on a loo seat. So, um, so, the, um, so it, it's, um, you've got to get those four in, lined up. So there's people doing the dribble and shake too early in the negotiation <laughs> exactly. period. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. Don't, don't show yourself to be a cretin uh, when you're raising money. It's yeah. when you exit. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Very important to get that bit right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that was your fifth, fifth piece of advice of what you look for. And yeah. uh, well, I think all, all of those, uh, for, for me, you know, the healthy unit economics is really important. I think you've said it before. You want to see people that are all in on this. They're, they're risking everything to make it work um, because it really cuts down on the due diligence if you think these yeah. people are, are really risking everything. Um, I look for a good deck. I just want a clearly expressed uh, view of where they are, where they've been, where they're going. Yeah. Um, and uh, what, what was the other thing? I, um, I, I like to see evidence that there's a hypothesis there that they've taken steps to prove. Um, yeah. Because for me, the, the scaling stage of Photobox was a completely different company than the kind of proof of concept stage. And I, I would be nervous about diving in before they've even proven whether somebody wants to buy this thing. And the final thing for me is, uh, if you did the maths on my angel investments, I invest quite small amounts of money in, in most of those companies. Um, so I, I look for companies that are worth less, they value themselves at less than five million. If they're over five million, I, I raise, uh, it's just too much hassle to do the due diligence and to think about where they're going. Okay, uh, you had one other point to add? No, I, I, I tend to also invest in, sort of in companies that are certainly around about that, around about that level because 
There has to be the fun in it. Has to be. There has to be a carrot. This thing could be huge. There's no point in, in investing in something that that has a very likely chance of doubling. Otherwise, you might as well buy shares in British Gas. Um, uh, but, um, the, but the other really important thing is, I like, like to invest in people that I want to help. I want to support because you are, if you're if you're going to be of use to them, you're going to spend time with them, and you're doing it as a kind of. It's, it's the. I think we both agree. It's probably it's the hobby side of our investing, and it's it's the um, you want to be helping people you enjoy spending time with. Next week on Secret Leaders. I googled, found nutritionist, found James Collier as now our co-founder. Two weeks later, he gave me the formula for Heal, which is pretty much identical to what we got today. Every supermarket has got food which is optimised for taste, and we're optimised for nutrition. The primary purpose of food is nutrition. It isn't taste. You can live without taste. You can live without any texture, but you can't live without nutrition. So it's quite bizarre how everything in the food industry is all focused around taste. That was the rather impressive Julian Hearn, the founder of Huel. Huel is one of the UK's fastest growing companies. In four years, its growth has overshadowed everyone else, hitting £40 million in sales, and they're on track for £60 million this year. And all for a concoction he made up to be a meal replacement, therefore creating a whole new category of food. After four years of privacy, hiding in his office with laser-sharp focus, he's finally stepped out for some vitamin D. So we did the only logical thing we could think of. We shoved him into our dark office studio and milked him dry for all the insights, as you'd expect. Tune in, or you'll miss out. We hope you enjoyed this episode. It was brought to you by me, Dan Murray-Serta, producer Rich Martell, editor Harry Morton of Lower Street Media, and marketing by Hannah Russell of Mags Creative, and stunning visual design by our talented designer Christina Naru of SmartUpVisuals.com. You can check out show notes, transcripts, and our upcoming live events on our website, SecretLeaders.com. If you've not yet, please hit subscribe, leave us a review, tell a friend, take a screenshot of this episode and add it to an Insta story. I mean, you know what to do. And tag us at Secret Leaders or at Dan Murray Serta, and we'll add you to our story in appreciation back. Rich and I put together Secret Leaders for free because we love our day jobs as entrepreneurs, but every time someone takes the time to share it, it means a lot to us. So don't forget, it's the little things like that that keep us coming back every week and every year into the studio. See you next week.